Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? Does it have to be about Christmas or just take place at or around Christmas? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Advent with this sermon entitled Christ the Tender Physician, which covers Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 to 9. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thank you for, for the ways in which you are moving and working all the time in our lives and in your church. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and goodness. Father, we pray and celebrate, Lord, we celebrate that you are the one who is always leading your church in triumphal procession. And so we, we trust in you, our good shepherd. We thank you for your leadership over us. And now, Lord, as we open your word, as we pray each week, would you bless this time tremendously? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit, give us insight and wisdom, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see? We pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us, you know that we're in week three of our series, uh, our Advent series leading up to Christmas, and uh, we're doing that this year by looking at some passages of Scripture that were written about 700 years before Jesus came, before he came the first time, written by the prophet Isaiah, and, and they're called, these passages of Scripture, there's four of them, we've covered two so far, we'll hit the third one today, these passages are called uh, the Servant Songs. Because they're poems, quite possibly may have been sung by God's people, but they're about this servant, this servant who is coming, who will come. Prophetic word, predicting what this servant will be like, how he will execute what he's coming to do, and in what manner that will take place, what we can expect and and look forward to. That was to his people 700 years before Christ. And there's so much for us to learn and to glean and to understand, even now on this side of his coming, about this servant king that we now know as Jesus. And so we've already looked at how this servant king who was to come, that he was the one who sustains the weary. That's what we talked about week one. Last week, Bob led us through that he's the one who is a light to the nations. This week... We're going to see those two themes continued in our passage. In fact, you'll see more of that same language, the sustainer of the weary, the light to the nations. But we're going to zoom in today on this servant king being a tender, tender physician, the one who heals us and upholds us in his tender hands. So to get us there, I'll I'll tell you this. I'll take you back to 1990, 30 years ago. What I think, I don't know, it's, I know it's arguable, how do we rank Christmas movies, it's so hard, but I would be tempted to say that the greatest Christmas movie ever made came out this month, 30 years ago, in 1990. It's called Home Alone. <laughs> we watch it multiple times every Christmas season in our home. And every year that we watch it, even though we know what's going to happen, we laugh hysterically. We know that the paint 
cans are going to drop from the stairwell. We know that he's going to step on the nail on the stairs. We know that he's going to squeal like a little girl when he sees the spider. We know all that, and we still laugh, and we still talk about the fact that if this were real life, there is zero way that they would not have died. (laughs) At least a concussion, something, blood, something. But that's the magic of cinema. It's not real. But there's a part of the Home Alone story, and if I'm, if I'm blowing this movie, the, the storyline, the plot of this movie for you, I'm not sorry you've had 30 years to watch it, okay? <laughs> but there's a, there's a character in this movie. There's a character in this movie that doesn't get talked about enough. In fact, I think he's the hero of the story. And it's not Kevin. It's old man Marley. Old man Marley is an old man. And he has this menacing look to him, a bit of a scraggly beard. He's got his rubber boots on every time you see him, and he's got this shovel that he carries around everywhere. And just the sight of old man Marley, just himself, would be enough to scare a 9- or 10-year-old boy, however old Macaulay Culkin is in that movie at that point. But it's the story that Kevin's older brother, Buzz, tells him that's the linchpin of the story that causes Kevin to be deeply afraid of old man Marley. They're they're in Buzz's room. Buzz is the character you love to hate, the older brother, the bully. And he tells Kevin and one of their cousins this story about old man Marley as they're looking out the second story window of Buzz's room, down at old man Marley, watching him shoveling snow and throwing down salt. And Buzz tells this gruesome tale of old man Marley's past. And it causes Kevin's eyes to get as big as saucers and his mouth to drop. And it causes him to have a view of old man Marley from that point forward that would shape the way in which Kevin related to, or better, better to say, ran from old man Marley the rest of the movie. Because there were going to be many instances throughout the rest of the movie where old man Marley was going to show up and Kevin, upon seeing him, screams in terror and runs away. And what we find out at the end of the movie is that this old man is not who we thought he was. He's not who Kevin thought he was. And the very one that Kevin should have been running to, towards the whole movie, is the one he was running away from. Because old man Marley, by the end of the movie, you realize that he's the one who was really Kevin's comforter, protector, and deliverer. And you go, wow, that is the most pastor take I've ever heard on Home Alone. (laughs) You even made it into three points, Jeff. But he is. He's the one that Kevin should have been running to. But because, here's the point, because Kevin had a wrong view of old man Marley, it dictated the way in which he responded to him. Is that not a metaphor for life? The most important view, if you will, perspective, if you will, that we can have as humans is what do we think when we think about God? How do we view God? As A.W. Tozer said it in his book, Pursuit of God, he said, what we think when we think about God is the most important thought we will ever think. Why? Because what we think when we think about God shapes absolutely everything about who we are in response. And so what do you think when you think about God? How do you view him? There's three critical views that we have to have as humans in order for us to live the way that God made us to live. And they go in this order. 
I've already talked about the first one. We must have a right view of God. It's absolutely critical. It's the most critical thing about us. How do we view God? How do we see Him? How do we understand Him? How do we relate to Him? How do we approach Him? Our view of God is absolutely critical because our view dictates the second thing. Do we have a right view of ourselves? A right view of God, therefore, bleeds into how we view ourselves. If you have a view of God that is not who God really is, then you're going to have a view of self that's not who you really are. Because who God is determines who you are. Who God is not determines what you are not. And when we uh, try to define ourselves apart from a right view of God, we end up with a wrong view of self. And then thirdly, we must have a right view of others. And a right view of others flows out of a right view of God and a right view of self. In other words, if I understand, if I understand that I am at my core a sinner, one who has not by what I have done, but by my very nature of who I am, I have offended a holy God because everything within me, every part of my being left unto itself, unredeemed, unregenerated, is a person that pushes and balks against God himself. I don't want him. I don't want to know him. I want my own glory. I don't want his glory. That's who I am. And if I understand that with the added understanding that for no reason other than his grace, which is immeasurable, his mercy, which is incomprehensible, and then also his love, his love that is just so unthinkable, that he would actually come to me that I may know him and understand him rightly. It shifts everything about now my understanding of me and who he says that I am and who he has redeemed me to be which then has immeasurable uh, impact on how I see others, how I relate to others, how I move towards others. We've got to remember that. Do we see God rightly? Do we see ourselves rightly? Do we see others rightly? Isaiah 42 helps us see God rightly, helps us see more specifically the servant The servant king who would come, who has come, and who will come again. To see him rightly. To understand who he is and therefore allow him. Invite him to come and do the work that only he can do in us. So let's read the text together. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 says this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is what you can expect, in other words, Isaiah says. So there's four key questions that we ask from this text that we need to answer from those nine verses. Here's the first one. Who is the servant? Now, go ahead, cat out of the bag. It's Jesus, okay? Even kids are sitting there going, uh, I think that's the part where we say Jesus. That's the right answer. And it is. That is the right answer. But interestingly enough, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but there's been great debate over the centuries about is this, who is this servant? And, and lots of scholars, biblical scholars, particularly those naturally who aren't Christians, but yet they study the Bible, have tried to conclude otherwise, that it's not Jesus. Some, the two most prominent are this, some have believed and argued that it's Cyrus, the Persian king that would come and deliver Israel from Babylonian exile in 6th century B.C. This was written about 200 years before that. Now, Cyrus absolutely would come and do that, but it's very clear as you begin to read in this passage that this is not Cyrus. If you know anything about Cyrus, for example, verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That is not descriptive of Cyrus, this Persian king. There's all kinds of things within this passage that help us understand very clearly that this is not a cruel conqueror of nations like King Cyrus. This is a servant, one who is uniquely and, let's be honest, oddly different. Unique, the kingdom that he's bringing is so strange in comparison to all other worldly kingdoms. So it's not Cyrus. Others have concluded that it's Israel, that it's the nation of Israel, that this is actually prophecy about them, that they would eventually become who they are supposed to be. They would stop floundering. They would stop being uh, disobedient. And they would eventually uh, fulfill this prophecy by being the nation that is a light to the nations, which is their calling. It's what God has called them to be in that day and time. But they never lived that out. They never were a light to the nations. And verse 6 actually helps us understand that it's not about a collective of people. It's not about a nation. It's about an individual who would come. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And listen, I will give you, he's talking about the servant to come, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. In other words, what this, what this passage is pointing to is that there's one who will come. One individual who will come and be for Israel what Israel can't be for herself. It, to say it more broadly and more accurately to the whole of Scriptures, there is one who would come who will be for God's people, who, will, who are going to be from all tongues and tribes and nations, going to be for them what we cannot be for ourselves. We can't be righteous. We can't be a light to the nations. 
We will fall and flounder every time we try. But not this servant. Not the one to come. So, if that weren't enough, one last piece of evidence that this is Jesus that's being talked about here. And it comes from Matthew chapter 12. I won't read it, but verses 15 through 21, which is the longest Old Testament citation in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. When he's talking about Jesus, he quotes this passage from Isaiah 42. To simply say, the one that we were promised about in Isaiah 42, Jesus is the one. So Jesus is a servant. Second king, uh, second king, second uh, point. What is the servant sent to do? In other words, what's his mission? Isaiah 42 tells us very clearly this is when he comes, this is what he will do. This will be his mission. And it says it three times in the first four verses. Listen, uh, in verse 1, the second part of verse 1, it tells us very blatantly, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. There's the first one. Then again, in verse uh, 3, the second half of verse 3, it says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then again, in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So three times in the first four verses, God has told us that when the servant comes, this will be his mission, and it's this. It's to bring justice to the nations. Now, justice is a word that certainly in our context has been thrown around a lot, especially this year, and that has been defined in a lot of different ways. But biblically here... It's getting at something very specific. We'll let John Oswalt lead us there. He's a biblical commentator. He says this. He says, the Hebrew word translated justice in 42, 1, 3, and 4 is the antonym of chaos. It is much more than mere legality, as justice has come to connote in English. Rather, it is the idea of right order. So really, the essence of justice, the essence of justice and the mission of the servant is to take what has been chaotic and put it back into right order. In other words, to make things right. That's the mission of the servant, the servant king. That he has come to make things right. To take what was thrown into chaos in the Garden of Eden in us and through us to the world around us, that what was brought into decay, into chaos, is now through this one servant going to be slowly but surely and one day fully made right. And when you think about justice, first and foremost, biblically, when God talks about justice, he's talking about the vertical orientation to his people being made right again with him. So when the servant comes, that we now know is Jesus, when he comes, what is the mission of his kingdom? Remember, don't forget this. This is incredibly important. What's the mission of his kingdom? The mission of his kingdom is to first and foremost save us from ourselves. Because remember all of his followers, what they thought the mission of his kingdom was? They had misinterpreted these Old Testament passages, and they thought, we talk about it a lot, but you've got to keep remembering this because it helps us understand the rhythm, the pattern, the progression of the Bible. They thought that the reason he came was to deliver them from Rome, to the injustice and the oppression of those who were over them governmentally. And Jesus showed up into the scene and he, and he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And they, and they said, what? 
And, they, and they're having arguments. Remember this with the disciples? They're having arguments about which one of us is going to be the greatest when he sits on his throne. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about, hey, when he does march to Rome and overthrows the government, which one of us is going to get to sit closest to him? And they're totally missing the nature of the, servant, the servant's kingdom, which is to say, I came not to be served, but to serve and give, as a, give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, I came to die. Why did I come to die? I came to die because the justice of God needs to be satisfied. And what's the justice of God? God is a just God, which means as a holy God, don't lose me here because this is the essence of the gospel. The the justice of God is that God is holy, which means that he cannot in any shape, form, or fashion not only tolerate sin, but he must condemn it. He must punish it. He must damn it. He must send it to where it originally came from, which is back to the belly of hell itself, which means that we are the, the essence of sin because it's our nature. Sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are. We are born with the Adamic residue, the nature of Adam and Eve. And so God being a just God, he must punish sin. So when the servant shows up and it says that he is going to establish justice, to faithfully bring justice to all nations, what that means is this. The servant's going to stand in the gap between us and God, and he's going to receive the full just wrath of God upon himself. Why? So that things between us and God can be made right again. The chaos that exists between us will be no more. And what was disunified between us and God, what was broken between us and God, will now be made right. And it's only through this one servant. Now, the implications of that through his people are profound. That we are to be a people of justice and righteousness as we live that out, as those who have received the justice and righteousness of God in us. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of the grace of God alone. So what can we say is true about the mission of the servant? Here's three things briefly. One is we, we can conclude that his mission is a restoring one. He's restoring, making things new in us and through us, with God and then through us to everything that we touch and everywhere we, that we go. He's doing a restoring work in and through his people. Secondly, his mission is a worldwide one. You saw it there in the text that he's bringing his justice to the nations that the coastlands are waiting on his law. Bob talked about this last week, the light of the nations of the servant Jesus, and so I won't belabor that. But thirdly, his mission is an unexpected one. It's an unexpected one. And the reason it's unexpected is because when he came, how he accomplished his mission was very, very unexpected. This is the third question that we have to answer is how. How does the servant do what he's sent to do? I'll give you two things very quickly here. One is, he did it in quietness. He did it in quietness. Look at verse 2 again. It says that when he comes, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. It's really interesting. Because think about, especially these ancient kings... 
the kings that would have been in power when this was written, that is the opposite of what their, the nature of their kingdom, of how they would proclaim their kingdom to be. These ancient kings, they would boast about the ferocious ways in which they fought to bring their quote-unquote justice to those that they had conquered. And they would make sure that everyone knew how great they were. That was the nature of these ancient kingdoms. It's still the nature of who we are today. We are a people that left unto ourselves, we still want to boast. And what do we want to boast in? We want to boast in our greatness. And we want to shout from the streets. We may not do it, but we want to shout from the streets that you should make a big deal about me. That's how we function. But watch Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The account of his, his life and, and mainly his ministry. Watch how he operates. It's so quiet. It's so quiet. Let me give you a couple of examples, and there are, there are many, many examples. But think about this. Think about his baptism. So he's being baptized by John the Baptist. And upon coming out of his baptism, the Father speaks. God the Father speaks. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 1 again. Chapter 42, Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. What's happening in his baptism is, is kind of, it's, it's a lot of just saying, look, Isaiah 42, 1, I said that there would be one who would come and whom I would uphold and whom I would delight. He's here. This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. If there's ever been a time for Jesus to stand up upon that moment and to say, everybody listen, I'm here. Isaiah 42, one servant is me. That would have been the moment to do it. What does he do? He immediately leaves. And he's taken into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. Think about John 6, the crescendo of the, of the frenzy of people following Jesus. He's healed thousands and thousands are following him, probably close to 20,000. Uh, scholars estimate. And it's right after the feeding of the 5,000, which only counted men. And things are crazy around Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, gather more, gather more, gather more. And he doesn't shout in the streets. He simply does this. He says, if you want to follow me, John chapter 6, then you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they go, what? He's foreshadowing the cross. It's figurative language. They think it's literal, and they go, uh, we didn't know we were following a cannibal. I'm out. In other words, he quietly brings the nature of his kingdom, which is contrary to every other nature, a kingdom of, uh, of the nature of kingdoms in the world. How many times did Jesus, upon healing someone, say, don't tell anybody, for the time has not yet come? And then you have him standing before his condemners who are going to condemn him to the cross. And they say, speak, are you not the king? We'll talk about this next week as we look at Isaiah 52 and 53. He doesn't say a word. Now, this doesn't mean the wrong application of this is to go, oh, well, the scriptures tell me that I don't need to talk about Jesus. I don't need to proclaim him to others because his is a quiet kingdom. No, we've got to get that out of our head. We're talking about the nature of the servant 
And yes, we are to mimic the servant, but, that, but we do speak. Jesus obviously spoke. It's in how we speak. It certainly accompanies our lifestyle and the nature of the quietness of the kingdom of God. But secondly, and this is where I want to talk about him as the tender physician, he brings his kingdom, the mission of his kingdom is done in tenderness. He is the tender physician. So tender that as verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Is there anything more delicate than a bruised reed, little stick dangling by a hair, that if you just bump it, it might fall? Is there anything more delicate than a candle you just lit? I always look at these to make sure they're still burning. It's just barely hanging on. The flame is barely hanging on to that wick, and just the slightest of breaths is going to blow it out. We look at those things. Many of us have held candles, and you're just so gently just kind of doing this number because you don't want it to go out, and you know how delicate it is. And what God's saying in this text is first to Israel, he's saying, your broken reeds and your faintly burning wicks, but I will not put you out. But the broader context of application is that Israel never responded to that message. So God takes that message to all the world as he promises in this text. That it will be for the nations. And he says, all of us, every single one of us, whether we realize it or not, we're all broken reeds. We're all faintly burning wicks. What makes us that way? The language is... a in some texts, is a bruised reed. What makes us that way? It's circumstances, yes. We, many of us right here, right now, feel it. We say, that's me, absolutely. After this year, that's me. There's no better explanation. But what this is mainly getting at is not so much our circumstances that can certainly make us feel that way, but it's our hearts. It's sin. That we are a people Deeply, deeply broken. And we have a physician, we have a tender king who came not to break us, but to heal us. To take us in all of our weariness and all of our waywardness and make us whole. To put us back together. Richard Sibbs, a great, great theologian and pastor from the 17th century, he wrote a book in 1631 called The Bruised Reed. He says this in, in, uh, in his book. He says, he is a physician good at all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. But he also says this. Look at this next quote from him. He says, Christ's way is first to wound and to heal. That's that's confusing to us because we, we think it's all these circumstances and outward things that, that wound us. But what we understand in the scriptures is that Jesus often has to wound us himself to bring us to our breaking point, to where we open our eyes to see that, oh, yes, indeed, I am hanging on by a thread, if you will. I am a broken reed, more broken than I could ever understand. But there's only one who puts me back together. 
Christ wounds those that don't understand how wounded we are because of our sin so that we will see him as the only true healer of hearts so broken. He's the tender physician. He goes on to say this, Sibs does. He says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. What he means by that is this. If you don't think you're broken, that's the scariest place you can be. If you think you're sound and put together, oh, may God show you and me and us how broken we truly are. That's actually a good news message. Because the message of the gospel is not, can I get myself together so that I can come to the one in whom I fear? The message of the gospel is I can never put myself together. So may I come to the one who, yes, I fear, but who loves me and heals me beyond comprehension. Let me tell you why he did this, and I'm simply just going to read this for the sake of time and then wrap us up. Why, this is the fourth question, why did the servant do this? Why does he come in this way? Let me give you six reasons. I'm just going to read them. Straight from the text, you'll see the verses there. Study them on your own this week. He did it to be a covenant for the people. He did it to be a light for the nations. He did it to open the eyes that are blind. He did it to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. He did it to bring out from prison those who sit in darkness. And he did it to be glorified as the one true God. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. The one servant king who comes to illuminate us, to give us sight, to bring us out of the darkness, to resurrect us from the dungeon, to see the woundedness of our hearts, to see what sin has done to us, and then delicately and tenderly, not condemningly, put us back together. Sustain us, restore us, renew us, redeem us, heal us. The tender physician. You know what I love about how Home Alone ends? It's not so much that the bad guys get, get, get what they're due by the end of the movie. We knew that would happen. The part that might catch you off guard, though, is before that happens. Kevin, before he goes on his mission to destroy these guys in his house in the most hilarious of ways, he wants to go into this chapel first. And seeks some type of divine intervention and help before he goes on his mission. And he's sitting in this chapel. He's the only one in there watching this choir, this children's choir, rehearse. And as he's listening to the music, who comes in? Old man Marley. And old man Marley walks straight down that center aisle. And he could sit anywhere in that chapel. But he sits down right next to Kevin. As if to say... You keep running from me. I know you don't know who I am. And so I'm going to plop down right next to you and reveal myself to you so that you can know who I really am and trust me. Is that not the gospel? See, the gospel is not Kevin finally getting up the courage to go and go, all right, I know I just need to go face old man Marley. Maybe he's not who I think he is. Kevin's always going to run. 
That's me and you. The message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not that you and I finally get the courage to go and to come to Jesus and go, okay, are you really who I think you are? No, no, no. It's Jesus coming to us. That's the message of Christmas. That's the incarnation. He comes to us as if to sit down right next to us and say, you have misunderstood who I am. I am not who you think I am. I am better than anything you could ever imagine, and I'm going to reveal myself to you, and it's not the king you thought you were going to get. It's even better and I'm him and we go wow and Kevin goes oh I can actually trust this one in a world where we have been broken by so many we get to run to one who will not break us who wound us so that we can see our brokenness but only to heal us There are many listening this morning that I'm convinced you are bruised and you are battered, you are broken and you are running. And this morning or whenever you listen to this at some point, this is the time where you let Jesus sit down next to you and let him reveal to you who he really is and trust him. He is astonishingly Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are and that you would send your son, Jesus, the servant, the tender physician. Jesus, we praise you as the one, the one in whom we long to see rightly, that we would no longer run from the only one who heals us. Father, forgive us of all the ways in which we seek healing in in places other than you, Christ. And Holy Spirit, we invite you, we, we ask that you would come and fill us to the uttermost that we would be a people who trust with all we have, our servant King Jesus. We worship you now and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and let's sing to this king together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.